you've had 65 books of the Bible, and the last eight paragraphs talk about the reward of the righteous. And he talks about it in a beautiful terminology in chapter 21. He describes it as a new heaven and a new earth. And as you read that, there's a special word for new there that's used in the text. It's a new kind altogether. It's not, as some would suggest, a renovated earth where God took the earth, the same old earth, and remodeled it like we would our house. But it's an entirely new uh, spiritual kingdom, a spiritual realm in which the saints of God will live. And it's not the old heaven and the old earth. The first heaven and the first earth have been, uh, have been destroyed and have been cast away. Destroyed because of the work of God, and which was the purpose and the plan of God. In this particular first section, he talks about God dwelling with man in this new heaven and this new earth. You notice it occurs to me as I read this and John's description of it about God creating the first heaven and the first earth, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. When you read that, you see the physical world that was uh, created by God. And now John writes by Revelation, Revelation 21, about the spiritual world that God has created. What happens to the uh, physical world has been depicted for us in a number of Bible passages. For example, Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. It's a very familiar uh, passage to you. Beginning in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of the which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That's verse 12. Well, he's talking about the first heaven and the first earth. Then in our study tonight, we're talking about a new heaven and a new earth. And it is new in kind. It has a very special creative existence that God has brought about. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I indicated on the outline that there are several things that we read about that are new in the book of Revelation. Some things are new in the New Testament number of things, but here he describes the new heaven and the new earth. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what the new heaven and the new earth is, but I don't think there can be any, any doubt that the matter that's being referred to at the present is that of heaven, the home of the righteous. There Jesus said in John chapter 14 and 2, I go to prepare a place for you. It is a place which God has prepared. He says that uh, he saw this new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, uh, and the sea was no more. I think reference to the sea has reference to the separation that exists between God and man. There is a type of separation that exists, and we've seen that earlier in the book of Revelation. Now he was at before the crystal sea, but now the sea is gone. There is no separation between God and man, and that's the point. God's dwelling among men. He's now is with them, and man can have direct fellowship with God. Here, our fellowship is, is indirect with God. But then it will be on that wonderful day, there will be no separation, and the fellowship with God will be immediate, and we'll be with Him forever and ever. And as I'll make mention in a moment, I'll go ahead and say it now. And that's what makes heaven, heaven. Uh, we're going to look at some items, and the building materials of heaven are very precious. But what really makes heaven heaven is this fact right here. God's dwelling among men. 
We have full fellowship with God now, which we never had before, which man has never had before. But God's made that possible through Christ. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice where she comes. She comes from heaven. And proponents of this world being the New Jerusalem, a renovated world, will jump on this passage and they'll try to say, you see there, you got heaven coming out of heaven. That doesn't make sense. But try to keep in mind that he's not talking so much about the direction and the location spatially as he's coming about talking about the divine origin of the place. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. His reference here is about its origin. It is divine in nature, which God has created for them that are obedient and whom he blesses with his wonderful grace. And notice also how he mixes the metaphors. This has always caused a lot of problems. We'll try to understand it tonight. He talks about a city, a new Jerusalem, and then he starts talking about a bride, a bride adorned for her husband. And it's very easy for the book of Revelation to mix and mingle these metaphors. And that sometimes causes us problems in understanding. One moment he's talking about uh, a city, another moment he's talking about a bride. But I think the way to understand that, what has helped me, is the city metaphor gives us the idea of the place, but the the bride metaphor gives us the idea of the people. And it's really hard to separate the place from the people. As you read through the book of Revelation, especially these latter portions, and even in the books of the New Testament, you're seeing so much connection between the city, uh, the people of God, the church of the living God, and the place called heaven. And to talk about one is like talking about the other. They're so closely connected with each other. When he talks about the city, he's talking about the place which God has prepared. John chapter 14 and verse 2. When he talks about the bride, he's talking about the people that will go to that place which God has prepared. And I've said many times in in, uh, sermons and uh, uh, discussions along this line, though I've not spent a lot of time discussing the matter, that there's not much difference. And what is heaven other than the people of God receiving the reward which God has in store for them? Sometimes referred to as a city here, a symbolic metaphor to try to help us understand that God has prepared a place for us. He's going, we're going to see how the angel measures the place. Isn't that an interesting thought? But also the people of God, the people that will be there. And may I jump on down and study just for a brief moment, verse 8, the people who will not be there. But as for the cowardly, the fatherless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. Now, verse 8 tells us very clearly who will not be there. And I'll spend a moment, a brief moment, talking about verse 8 in just a moment. But I think the main thrust of the matter is for us to understand that God's dwelling will now be with men, and that is a wonderful thing to look forward to. And verse 3 continues... I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And I think that's the thrust of this first paragraph. He's saying we will have full fellowship with God. Now, I don't know how many times, and I think I quit counting at 20. I probably have missed some, that John heard a loud voice in the book of Revelation. Uh, You see that a lot. You see it here in 21 and 3. And I heard a loud voice. 
And when it says that he heard a loud voice, what he's saying there is, you know, this is an important message from God. God is giving me a very important message. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. And I may be mistaken here, so please study this out and correct me. This is one of the few, if any, if ever, God speaks himself from the, from the throne. You have the Lord speaking, you have the angels speaking, you have the angels doing this and the angels doing that, but I really don't recall God himself speaking in the book of Revelation. But here he speaks, and he speaks from the throne. And what he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Interesting thing about the translations here. It's in the plural form. He's really talking about fellowship with mankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. People seems to have the plural form to it. And some translations actually translate that peoples or something along that line. It's that from everyone everywhere who have obeyed the gospel and been faithful to it. It's not just a matter of a certain group receiving the reward of heaven, but all who've been obedient and faithful to the Word of God and listened to the teaching of God through the, through the Word and have obeyed it and applied it to their life, uh, people from all over the world who have heard the gospel and responded properly to it. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I find it interesting that he says what there will not be in heaven. He says there will not be any tears in heaven. There will be no death in heaven. Neither shall there be mourning in heaven. And so he said there's not going to be this, and there's not going to be this, and there's not going to be that. Now there are times when he tells us this what's going to be. There's going to be this there, and there's going to be that. But what he says here is they're not going to be these things here. And I find that interesting that the way he tries to describe this dwelling that we have with God is what will not be there. But I think I understand that in the sense that there are a lot of people who've never experienced the joy of life. But everyone has experienced these experiences of life. Everyone has experienced the tears of life and the death that is around us everywhere and also the mourning as a result of that death, and those who have faced pain, and those who have faced suffering. Everybody has gone through that experience. And, and when he writes this particular passage, particularly in the first pa- chap- uh, paragraph, he's saying, now these things will not be because everybody's gone through that at one time or another. And the wonderful joy and the wonderful bliss that we sometimes associate with heaven, of course, we also understand the absence of things in heaven. And you won't have to worry about tears in heaven because the thing that caused tears will not be there. How many of us have cried over the death of a loved one when we're at the funeral service? A loved one has passed away that's so near and dear to us and we were filled with such suffering and sorrow over that. Our hearts were broken over the fact that a loved one has passed away and we were crying over that. There won't be any of that over there in heaven because there'll be no death there. I think he writes it this way because everybody's experienced that from the very beginning, back in the days of Genesis chapter 3, all the way up to the end of time, because of the old wicked serpent, the dragon, introduced sin into the world, and all the suffering, all the tears, all the crying, all the pain, all these matters, these former things now are passed away because Satan himself has been cast 
into the pit that burns forever and ever, Revelation chapter 20. He brings us to um, this particular matter, a new paragraph, all things are made new, verses 5 through 8. And uh, I'd like to spend just a brief minute talking about these passages, and some of these I'll, I'll be able to um, mention and then move along because of the shortness of our time, but this certainly is a matter that we do want to uh, make mention of, the matter of the new, as I mentioned a moment ago. He who has seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. There's God talking. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, I've wondered about that a number of times because it comes up in the pages of the book. But the point that he's making is you can be sure that this is going to take place. Why? Because he told John, write it down. Now, sometimes I think that John is so captivated with the vision and so enthralled with the scene that maybe this inspired stenographer loses uh, sight or loses focus on the matter of his writing. And he's so caught up in the vision, so caught up, and God says, write this down. Maybe that was part of it. Uh, don't forget to put this down, write it down. But I rather choose to think that the real point of the passage is you know that this is going to take place, that what God starts, he fulfills, because it's going to happen. And I know it's going to happen because God told John, you write this down, and so the people can see it, because the words are trustworthy and true. And we know that it's going to take place. In fact, it's described as being done in verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. Now that, grammatically speaking, is what's called a prophetic perfect. A prophetic perfect is when we actually go and God says something is being done before it actually is done. Well, how could God do that? How could God say it's done when it's not done yet? He's, because it's so certain to happen. It is so certain that it's going to happen that he describes it as being done. There is no way this is not going to happen. He's going to fulfill these particular matters. Write this down because it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's why it's going to happen, because of who he is. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Now, we studied about the Alpha and the Omega, this expression earlier in the book. And in that particular section, I believe it's in chapter 1, where he describes himself in that fashion. In Revelation 1 and 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, Alpha, of course, is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. But what he means here in chapter 1, verse 8, is that before Rome was, I was. I've always been. Uh, I always was. I always will be. There was never a time when I didn't exist. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation 1, 8. But how he uses it here in Revelation 21 and verse 6 is, this is going to come to pass because of who I am. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, God is saying of himself. And that's how you can know that this is going to take place. This is how you can know that the promises will be fulfilled because I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning, I'm the end of it all. He says, and he said to me, it is done. And you know why it's going to be done? And spoken of as if it has already been done? Because I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. <clears throat> that had to be a wonderful promise that Bedouins and people of uh, the ancient times would look forward to. You know how difficult it is to draw water? 
to get water, to get water for the family. And so he says, this is a spring of the water of life. This water just continually gushes. It's a spring. Back home in Tennessee, we had what's called wet weather springs. And when uh, it was during the rainy season, you'd have a spring and that kind of thing, and it would be, it would water that part of the pasture. But when the sun came out later in the summer, there goes the spring. You didn't have it. But here's a continual spring that continues to water. And guess what? It's without payment. Uh, you, there's some things money can't buy. And this is one of those things. Money can't buy eternal life. And we think money can buy this and money can buy that, and it can. There's a lot of things that money can buy, but money can't buy this. And money's not going to do you any good here. Because this is not a money-type matter. This is a matter of God giving to those who have been faithful. The one who conquers will have his heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now that word conquer is the one that we need to emphasize. To be an overcomer. To be the kind of one who actually accomplishes this. You see, the book of Revelation, and this comes to mind, is not just a book talking or describing heaven. It does do that, but what it's trying to do is encourage and motivate us to go there. And so he says, now it's not just a matter of us looking ideally at this beautiful, pristine place which God has created in such a miraculous way, this new heaven and this new earth like a bride uh, before her husband. It's not only that, but it's also motivating you and motivating me to have the kind of faith unto death, Revelation 2 verse 10, that's necessary in order to go there. And so he's saying in verse 7, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, He'll go there. I want you to overcome. I want you to go there, God is saying. But here are the people who won't. First of all, the cowardly. The cowardly are those who were overwhelmed with fear. The cowardly in Revelation 21 and verse 8 are the ones who faced the beast of the sea and the beast of the land and succumbed to them. They were filled with such fear. You know, some people are overwhelmed with fear, and they just can't do what they need to do. There are some people who have great fear, but they continue to do what they need to do anyway. Uh, men and women, perhaps in battle, that kind of thing, will understand this much better than I, or you might have faced a situation that was a very fearful situation, but you continued to act in the way that you needed to act or do what you needed to do, even in the face of the very terrifying experience. Now, here are people who didn't, though. They were cowardly. They were overwhelmed with fear and wouldn't do what God had told them to do, and that was remain faithful. They were faithless, detestable. They were involved in all sorts of immorality. You remember the harlot riding the scarlet beast. They succumb to the temptation of that. Those people will not be there in this place. They are not overcomers. The murderers. Murderers are probably those who uh, told on the Christians. Here you have uh, uh, a mole or a spy. And this mole says, well, I know who's a Christian. Uh, there's a, Christ a group of Christians meeting over there at such and such a time and such and such a place. And if you go over there with your soldiers, you can capture them and you can punish them. They're murderers. Murderers who in turn would tell of the uh, lives of individual innocent Christian people. 
the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. They're not the overcomers. They're not going to be in that beautiful place that the Bible calls heaven. And for that reason, there is a place prepared for the wicked. Now, one of the things that helps motivate me when I think about heaven, I think about hell, is I don't want to go to hell because I don't want to be with people like that. And I read Revelation 21 and verse 8, and I don't want to be with a crowd like that. Uh, The worst the world has ever produced will be there, and I don't want to be there. And that helps motivate me to make the right kind of decision that I need to make. Then he talks about Jerusalem the bride. And if I have just a brief moment, I'd like to spend uh, uh, on this particular passage, and it will have to be brief. I spent uh, a brief moment talking about the difference. There's not a lot of difference that we can see between Jerusalem as a place and the bride as the people. Because when you talk about the people, you're talking about the church. You're talking about the bride. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I think it's interesting that this angel that had a bowl of wrath uh, is the one who announces the coming of the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, there needs to be, and I often feel this way, I'm a little frustrated when I get into these discussions because I have a limited amount of time, and I try my best to focus on on these matters and and discuss it, but a lot needs to be said about the espousal-type relationship in New Testament times, which would help us understand where we are in relationship to Christ. We're in that type of espousal relationship with Christ. We are here uh, today as children of God and part of the bride of Christ as individual members of the church, Ephesians chapter 5. But we are not in the marriage with Christ as yet. That will take place when Christ comes. It's a kind of a spousal type relationship that we have with Him at the present. Then full relationship with the Son and full relationship with God will come when Christ comes the second time. But we're described as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And it is incumbent upon us to remain faithful to Christ, our intended we must remain faithful as the espousal of the, of the Lamb of God when He comes. And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It's described as coming down because its origin is from God. It's not a geographic location that He's talking about. He says He was carried away on a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city Jerusalem. Reminds you of Moses in the days of Deuteronomy, how that God took him atop Mount Pisgah and there laid out all the uh, cities of the land of promise before him. And there he showed him of the uh, land that the children of Israel would inherit that God would give them. Now John is doing that for us here. He's taken to a high mountain. I don't think he's literally physically taken there. I think, as he says, carried me away in the spirit. He was transported there, spiritually speaking. And he was shown this this holy city, Jerusalem, the place. He's talking about heaven. So when he talks about Jerusalem, he's talking about the place, heaven. When he talks about the bride, he's talking about the people who are in heaven. And what is heaven other than the people being with God and having full fellowship with Him? Sometimes it is confusing because the symbolic literature sometimes melds these figures together. But that's the best way to see it. And he sees this holy city, Jerusalem, holy because God created it. 
having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Uh, it takes on the very nature of the being itself. God was described as uh, in chapter 4 in those terms, and now we see the creation of heaven described in those terms as well. God takes on in the creation of the New Jerusalem, the holy city, takes on the same appearance. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. Now at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, verse 13. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. Then the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Well, you can easily see the symmetry here of this symbolism how that these particular matters are describing both covenants. The interesting part about the description in verse 12 to me is the function of the angels. And sometimes I used to think, well, the angels are there protecting the city, not allowing anyone of verse 8 to come in. But I don't really think that's the way to look at it. I think a better way to look at the angels of the high wall and the 12 gates are sort of the, the welcoming committee. For those who enter into that holy city which God has prepared for them that love him. The gates were a very important part of an ancient city. It showed security. Here you have twelve. And they're each side of the city. Showing that all who are obedient to the gospel may come into the city. Now that does not mean anybody and everybody's going to be saved. As some try to write it. But it does mean that no matter where you live. Where you live in India. Whether you live in Nepal or wherever you live. You live in the United States and Texas? There in turn, if you're obedient to the Word of God, you may enter that wonderful city. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Now the heavenly city is measured. And guess what? There's a tremendous measurement. We're awed by the size of the city. Before I look at actually its size, I look at what this angel measures with. And he measures with a gold rod to measure the city. Now, we've had measurements before in the book of Revelation, but never has an angel measured with a golden rod. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls, and the city lies four square. Its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Now, how many of us really understand what uh, a stadia is? That's just a, a New Testament type of measure. Some translations, to help us get a handle on the size and the description of the city, have said, well, it's uh, 1,500 miles, 1,500 miles in every direction. In fact, as you look at the measurement of the city, which the angel measures, it's going to be the perfect cube. And some have tried to say, oh, this is a pyramid. But no, it's not a pyramid that's described here. This is a perfect cube, which shows it's square, it's perfect, that God is, has a perfect place. It really shows two things. God has made a perfect place for the righteous to dwell in eternity, and God has made every preparation necessary to provide for those who will be in that beautiful city the Bible calls heaven. Now, for those who want to literalize this particular matter, you have further problems. If it is a city four square, <clears throat> 12,000 stadia, or let's just say 
for easy purposes, 1,500 miles in every direction, height and width and depth and all that sort of thing, you're going to have trouble getting that size of a city in Palestine. Palestine's only 150 miles north and south and 70 miles east and west. That size city will not sit there. If you're going to literalize this, you've got real problems with the measurement. It can't be understood that way. It must be understood in a symbolic type of fashion. Well, just how far is 1,500 miles? Well, try from New York City to Houston, Texas. That's a lot of space in every direction. Uh, from New York City to Houston, roughly speaking, uh, you've got a city eight times the size of the state of Texas. But what is the point of all the measurement? Well, the point of the measurement is simply to show that God has created a perfect place for his people. And in that perfect place, he's provided for every need. It is adequate for all who will be there in that place. Then the wall is described in verse 17. 17 says that the wall is 144 cubits. A cubit, roughly speaking, is 18 and a half inches. It would be the measure of a person's forefinger to his elbow. And so it's a relative type of measure. But if it's 144 cubits, uh, then you have um, uh, a city that's something like 200 feet. The walls, now I can't be sure if he's talking about the height of the walls or if he's talking about the thickness of the walls. He says he also measured its wall. So I, I'm not in the city now. The city's 1,500 miles in every direction. But he's also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, there's some misunderstanding about that point, but let me get to it in a second. The point that he's making right now is, in our text, is, you know, this tremendous wall. I choose to think he's talking about the thickness of it. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe he's talking about the height of it. It is a tremendous wall that he's talking about, protecting the city. But again, it's a symbolic figure. It's symbolism showing the protection which God has given. And what does this matter about an angel's measurement? All that means is the angel is taking that measurement. The angel is doing it. It doesn't mean that humans have one kind of measurement and angels have some other kind of measurement. He's simply saying that the angel took this measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. How can you have that? Gold that's clear as glass and jasper. Only by means of symbolism, you see. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. I think when you go through and you list all these particular matters and you think about the color and the hues that are found in these, em these elements and these spiritual building materials, it shows a beautiful city. Verse 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. How can you have gold that's as transparent as glass? Well, I don't know. It's a symbol. And it's a figure to show the beauty of it and the greatness of it and the grandeur of it. Here you got gates of pearl. It doesn't mean that the gates were covered with pearl. It means the gates were made out of pearl. Now, if you were going to take this in a literal way, just think about the size of the gate that is. You got a wall that's 200. Am I doing that? Maybe. Now that everybody's awake. Um. 
Don't miss out on that. I've got a great point going here if I can just get it out. <laughs> you got gates here 200 feet high. Uh, gates of pearl. What kind of oyster would it take to make that kind of pearly gate? And I mean, you got three of them on each side, the north, the south, the east, and the west. And what kind of ocean would it take to produce that kind of oyster that would produce that kind of pearl that would make that kind of gate? The thing that I'm trying to show is you can't take it literally. It's showing the beauty of it, the grandeur of it, the divine nature of it, the great provision that God has made in these particular descriptions of heaven. And now the last paragraph. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There is no temple there. And when you think about temple, you naturally think of God's Old Testament people. And the tabernacle of the Old Testament was there in the middle of the camp, and the camp was encamped around uh, the tabernacle. But the tabernacle was a sign that God is with his people. But here, there's no temple there because heaven is the temple. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are there. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon or the, to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the, is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now what he means by that simply is of the greatness of God and the glory of God. The only ones that will be in heaven are those who have been obedient to the gospel of Christ and faithful thereto. But now he's talking about all the kings of the earth and the people because God deserves the glory. And the glory will be there. Not that those wicked kings will be there. They won't be. They'll be in that place described in verse 8. But its gates will never be shut, verse 25, by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations... But nothing unclean will ever enter in it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, which we have studied on previous occasions. Heaven is a beautiful place. And that's the point that God wants us to glean from Revelation chapter 21. All of the wonderful symbols and all of the wonderful matters that we read about those building materials of such a beautiful nature. Now... If these are just symbols, then how beautiful must heaven be? Uh, we say, well, these are symbols. Streets of gold, gates of pearl, walls of jasper, transparent as clear glass. These are beautiful symbols, but heaven's even greater than that. How beautiful must heaven be? You have a city that's described in, in terms of 1,500 miles in every direction. With well, a wall, it seems to me, 200 feet thick. Maybe it's 200 feet high. How great must heaven really be if these human descriptions are trying as best they can to tell us what heaven is really like? Isn't heaven worth anything and everything that I have to do in order to get there? Whatever it is, whatever the sin is, isn't it far better to get it out of my life so that I can go to this place I just read? You know, if I were a real estate agent, which I would not want to be, no offense to those of you who may be. It's a very honorable profession. But if I were a real estate agent and I had an island somewhere where I advertised 
Here's an island that you can own. There is no pain there. There is no death there. There are no tears there. There is no mourning there. And you can have it. And it's free. I believe everybody would go for that. I believe they'd move in an instant. Let's say, okay, let's make it um, $1,000 a square foot. They'd sell everything they had in order to own a square foot of that special island. And here you have a real place in which those matters are actual. There will be no pain there. There will be no suffering there. There will be no sorrow there. And people look upon it with passing indifference where you can actually have this place. You can actually go to this place as a child of God, a faithful child of God, who has repented of sin and been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. It's amazing to me how people can look at heaven and the prospect with, with passing indifference and say, I'm going to let television be more important to me than heaven. Well, I'm going to let my job be more important to me than heaven. How could you think that way? It is a lack of faith. It is a lack of understanding that causes us to think that way. Brother W.B. West, a man that I admired so greatly, he was the dean of the Harding Graduate School. He actually started the school, and I loved him dearly. Um, I took a graduate course in the book Revelation, which he taught, educated at Oxford in England. The man had a massive library, very faithful child of God, very humble man, and uh, I just really loved him. And uh, he's the one that really opened my eyes to the study of the book Revelation. One day in class, Brother West, who's long since passed away now, he made this, gave us this illustration. Now, he read this somewhere, or perhaps he knew about the situation, I don't know. But this girl who was born, she was born blind, and she couldn't see. But the doctors, by looking at her, saw that, you know, by the time she gets older, maybe at the age of 12, uh, she might be able to undergo an operation. There's a certain procedure in uh, Europe whereby they have had success in operating on these particular matters. And he told the actual situation, and I can't remember all those details But at the time, the age of 12, the family took her to Europe, and there she underwent the operation. And um, the day came where the bandages came off, and she was sitting in the hospital up against the window, and there she opened up, and the first sight she had of this world were the beautiful Alps. And she started to cry, and she said, Mother, why didn't you tell me? It was so beautiful here. Why didn't you tell me that this world was so beautiful? And her mother, grabbing her and hugging her, said, Sweetheart, I tried. I tried to tell you how beautiful this world was. Well, that's what we have in Revelation 21. A man using human language trying to tell us how beautiful heaven must be. And it doesn't matter what the sin might be in your life. You can get rid of it so that you can go to heaven. So that you can be in that place the Bible just described for us tonight. And you can imagine suffering Christians facing a cruel world empire. Trying to crush them. Trying to destroy them. And God is telling them how beautiful heaven is going to be. I'm so thankful tonight that I'm a child of God. 
I'm so thankful that I've been baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins. And I live in the joy of God's grace every single day. By my obedient faith and by yours and God's grace, we can go to the place that we read about tonight in Revelation 21. The person who says, well, I'm just not going to study the book of Revelation. After all, no one can understand it is depriving themselves of one of the great treasures the Bible has to offer. And that is to tell us of that beautiful place that God has prepared for those that love him. Will you not go to heaven? Won't you obey the gospel tonight? Won't you repent of your sins and become a child of God as you need? While together we stand and while we sing.